And so you stood up to error and to falsehood. You didn't tolerate it. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us uh, in all of this. Also about prayer, Lord, as we look closer at this, this, this thing that happened with the fig tree. And Lord, that you'd use it to both inform us and to encourage us. So Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. It's nice to have routine where, you know, you stand up, you read the text, you pray, and then sit down. But it, it happens all the time at weddings because I'm so nervous at weddings because you just don't want to screw up because it's, it's, it's the bride's day and all that. I often forget to tell everybody to sit down. So I'm halfway through the, the vows and I see like the, the mother of the bride turn around and just tell everybody, you know, this is his first wedding. Go ahead and sit down. And it's like, oh man. Anyway, so thanks for being such good sports. All right. A lot of text here. Let's go ahead and get into it. Let's look at this whole thing with the fig tree. So the following day in the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, that's Jerusalem, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Well, part of the problem here is is that it was the season for figs. And bearing figs was the purpose for which the tree was created. But today, on this day, it didn't have any figs, not even for the son of man who created the tree. Okay? I mean, and of all weeks, this was the week of his passion, the week of his misery. And all it had to do was provide a couple figs. And it failed. And so Jesus was displeased with it. So he cursed the tree to ensure that it would never provide fruit again. And immediately the tree began to wither. Interesting story. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Now, Mark's gospel actually tells us that this actually happened the next day, that as they were coming back to Jerusalem from Bethany the following day, they looked at the tree that Jesus had cursed, and it was actually withered into its roots, and it just was fading away so quickly. And of course, when they saw it, they were just totally amazed. And they say, how did this happen so quickly? And here's Jesus' response. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. How many of you guys have withered a fig tree or removed a mountain and cast it into the ocean? You got no faith? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Jesus says that if they believe without doubting, they will be able to command the mountain to be uprooted and then cast into the sea or do something similar to the fig tree. Now, it's it's because of this passage uh, and others like it that people have really arrived at some pretty bizarre conclusions when it comes to prayer and faith and answered prayer and all of that. Some people read this and conclude that if, if they you know, have faith, if they have enough faith and they do not doubt, they will get whatever they want and they'll be able to do whatever they pray for. I don't know if you've been like me, but you've been a little disappointed uh, in things that you thought you believed God for and you prayed for. I mean, you guys, be honest, it's okay. Evangelical frustration, a little bit, yeah. 
I, I actually think the best way to resolve the misunderstanding is to point out exactly who it was that Jesus was talking to, or what we might say, or, or, or rather we might say who he was making this conditional promise to. We do have a tendency to think that if God makes a promise in the scriptures, that it automatically applies to us. Or at least, I mean, because we're Americans, it should apply to us, right? We're entitled to all these inalienable rights and stuff. But here in this passage, who is Jesus speaking to? Honestly, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples, right? Contextually. In a similar discussion in Luke 17, uh, verses 5 through 6, it's to the apostles, I mean, sorry, it is the apostles who say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. So the apostles speaking to Jesus say, Lord, increase our faith. To which he responds with, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. That's Luke 17, 5 through 6. Who's he speaking to? The disciples. Another is like it from Matthew 17, 20, where again Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples who had failed to cast out a demon. They said, why wouldn't it come out? And then he has this discussion with them again. This conditional promise was made to the apostles of Jesus. Understand, these are the men that Jesus appointed to do what Paul refers to as the signs of an apostle wonders and mighty deeds that would be unique to them. That's 2 Corinthians 12.12, unique to them. If everyone can do what the apostles could do through prayer and faith, there would be no difference between them and us, would there? I mean, somebody has to do the signs of an apostle and somebody doesn't get to. Guess who that is? Well, I guarantee it's me that, that does not get to, okay? If everyone can do what the apostles could do through prayer and faith, There would just be no difference between us. And the scriptures clearly point out a difference. I mean, according to the will of God, there is this difference, okay? God has chosen, he has ordained to do signs and wonders, mighty deeds through the apostles, not through anyone else. The promise was made to them, not to us. If someone believes that this promise applies to them, um, I would say just have them prove it with signs and wonders and mighty works, just as the apostles did everywhere they went and preached. God used the apostles to confirm the truth of the gospel, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. God was getting the church off of the ground. He was getting this thing going. It wasn't for everybody to do that. So, I do not believe, personally, that this conditional promise of Matthew 21, I don't believe that it applies universally to all believers. I believe that it only applies to the apostles. And since I've come to that conclusion, it's, I've had a lot less evangelical frustration in my prayers. Okay? But because of how this verse has been interpreted, people get disillusioned with prayer, and many people get upset with God. But I think we can solve that problem to identify who you is in the passage. And you are the boys whom God had ordained with special power to do special things in order to bring the truth of the gospel to bear upon the hearts and minds of people. I've been a victim of thinking that all things in the scriptures apply to me. 
And uh, I thought if I just strained hard enough in faith, if I would just believe more, and it always came up to being, you know, I, apparently I just don't believe enough, and, and neither does anybody else around me, because I'm not seeing the signs and the wonders, the mighty deeds, the miracles uh, that we read about in the Gospels in the book of Acts. I've seen miracles, uh, I've seen that stuff, uh, I appreciate it when God works that way according to his ordained will, and he, uh, we come along and we cooperate in faith with what he wants to do. Those are wonderful things. Uh, but I cannot, like Peter and Paul, command sickness. Amen? If I could, none of you would ever be in the hospital. All right? None of you would. Yeah. Yeah. I've found most often is that when I have prayed for a change in my reality, uh, it's usually not my reality that changes, it's me that changes. It's my perspective of reality. And then I actually become more useful to God and useful to others. Now, the people who believe that this promise belongs to them as it's said in the text, um, that they can do the works of an apostle, they always do fail to prove it. And it seems to always make a mockery of what Jesus has said. And while they love to quote passages like this, they typically avoid other passages of Scripture that have to do with prayer, like 1 John 5. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we have asked of him. Now, some people, and I've heard this as I'm praying for people, they believe that it's a demonstration of unbelief to pray for God's will. And I've heard say, well, well of course it's God's will. Well, can anything really thwart the will of God? I'm not confident that it can. But they say that to pray this way is a lack of faith. Instead, we should just pray that God will do what we ask. But God does nothing, nothing apart from his will. And it's presumptuous, it's, it's foolish to try and to manipulate the divine will. It is. Okay? But this understanding of prayer boils down to this. If we have enough prayer we can somehow get what we want anyway, if we have enough faith. Now, faith in some circles doesn't actually need to work in harmony with God's will or even by God's power, which is interesting because faith to them in itself is a source of power in their thinking. You know, some, too many actually believe that faith is a power all by itself and can produce results independent of God. When they speak of the power of prayer they actually mean something very different than what the Bible teaches. Many people, uh, like those out of Bethel Church in Redding, California, believe that their faith is the actual power that affects their circumstances. That by faith, they can command reality. That they can command reality. And it will alter. It will change. So prayer is not a, to them a, a petition. It's not petitioning God to work by his power in response to our faith, but it's them exerting power through their own faith. Prayer, faith are used to command reality to yield to one's desires. Like when, I don't know if you saw some of these things during COVID and the BLM riots, but the so-called prophets and apostles of Bethel and Reading, they commanded racism to end in America. And they dressed up like Gandalf. And they did this whole thing like Gandalf did in Lord of the Rings, and it was embarrassing to watch. Or like when Kenneth Copeland, who commanded the wind of God to blow COVID away, 
Uh, it was ridiculous. It, that is not biblical. It's certainly not Christian. And racism and COVID-19 are here to stay. Yeah. It is God alone who applies power. He alone possesses power. And it's up to him, it's by his will that he honors our prayers. And yeah, he loves to honor faith. It's impossible to please him without it. But prayer and faith are not magic. You know, faith is just trusting in the living God. And prayer is an appeal to the living God. And whether he acts in power or not, it depends on him. And the best way to know the will of God is, I know we get tired of hearing this, but it's to, it's to know the written will of God. And the better you know his written will, the better you know how to pray according to his will. That's just the truth. If you pray selfishly or, or contrary to his will, be sure that you're not going to get what you pray for. I mean, how many times, guys, when you were little, did you pray for some fast-moving car or, or some good-looking woman or something, something that was all about you, and, but certainly for the glory of God? <laughs> God's not a genie in a bottle. He's, he, he's not McDonald's. He's not to be trifled with. He's the Lord God Almighty. And we serve him. He does not, he does not serve us. He won't be commanded. He, he won't be manipulated, especially by a race of rebels who are consumed with themselves. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You pray for your own will and not for the will of God. It's crazy. Another verse avoided by uh, that school of thought. It's called the word of faith, heresy. Heresy means false doctrine. Um, but in, in, in looking at all this, we have to keep in mind that, you know, God is a, he's a good and wise father. He's both good and wise. He has to be both, or we might get everything we want, you know, like some grandparents with their grandkids, you know. He knows our needs, and he promises to supply our needs, he even knows our godly desires, and when it pleases him to grant those desires, he will in his time. God can heal, and he does. We've seen it. He can and does affect circumstances and outcome. Uh, I forgot to mention that a number of missionaries have been freed from, uh, in, in, in Libya. It's great. Uh, one of them was so mistreated during his incarceration, he had to immediately go into life-saving surgery they amputated his leg, but he's with us today. He's with his family, and uh, it's amazing. Yeah. So, so God works, and, 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 and that was the other amazing thing about the, those that were incarcerated in Libya. They were being interviewed on TV about why they did what they did. And so all across Facebook, all across YouTube, the gospel was being preached, and it was the fault of the government. See, God, he does what he wants when he wants but he doesn't do it apart from his will. He doesn't do anything that doesn't align itself with his plan for us. Nothing contrary to his character. And his love is never coerced on another. But he's a good father. He's discerning. He's, he loves us. Okay? But what he wants is he wants us to be conformed to him. And when our faith is conformed to his character, uh, what happens is our, our prayers end up cooperating with his will. And his will is perfect. It's good. And that's the thing, is often when we pray, uh, we're clueless. But we pray, and we plead with God. We cry out to Him. And I actually encourage people to do that. If you're clueless in prayer, just cry out to God. Just pray, okay? He, he actually expects that, and He's prepared for it. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know, 
I say clueless, but they mean the same thing. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the, what, the, what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to what? To the will of God. He's a good daddy. So he'll take your garbage prayer, your nonsensical prayer, the, the cluelessness that you have, the Spirit will adjust it and conform it to the will of God. He does that for us. I mean, guys just cry out to God because you're in pain or, or you, just, you just don't know. Well, he's faithful. He's there to hear you out. Okay? He'll have the Spirit intercede for you. And as the text goes on from here, verse 28, he will see to it that all things work together for good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. Now, in regard to, to this text in Matthew 21, applying uh, to the apostles and not to us, it, it's not to deter anyone from praying. The point is, is that we should pray, I believe, intelligently according to what God has said to us and not to someone else. If we, if we pray according to what he said to the apostles, I believe it just produces disappointment, disillusionment with God, frustration. Okay? But if we look at the passages that he said to the church, to his people universally, um, I don't believe there will be any disappointment, no disillusionment uh, with any of that. So pray and trust God in prayer. Let's get back to our text. Now when he came into the temple... Chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, how rude, and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So this, this behavior of the religious leadership of Israel, this is all desperation. They're doing all that they can to discredit Jesus in front of the people. You see, because what's happening, every time Jesus comes around, they begin to lose their base, they, they begin to lose their popularity. All of this admiration of the people begins to wane, and it's transferred over to Jesus. And so they just, they're desperate. And if they can cause the people to doubt the source of Jesus' authority, they'll abandon him, and then they'll be popular again, right? They're envious of Jesus, and they're trying to change this. And so in front of the crowds, even as he was teaching, they get in his face about the issue of authority, So Jesus decides to have a little fun with them. So Jesus answered them. He says, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Answer my question, I'll answer yours. What's the source of John's baptism, heaven or man? Is it from heaven or earth? Now this placed them in quite the conundrum, okay? Uh, They came to shame Jesus publicly, and uh, it's not working out already as they thought. And they discussed it among themselves. So they're, they're like, well, give us just a second. And they get into their little huddle, and they say, if, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. Their predicament is real because If they said that John's authority came from heaven, they would have to accept John's testimony about Jesus. And John said, there's the Messiah. There's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He said, I'm not worthy of him. I'm not worthy to to undo the laces on his sandals. I must decrease and he must increase. He's the one you're looking for, Israel. He's the one. So they certainly didn't want to say that John's authority was from heaven. 
But what they didn't consider was that the pe- what, is what the people would think of them when they, as the religious leaders, confessed their ignorance. How could they not know the origin of John's authority? If anyone was to know, it should have been them. They were the experts in God's law. They were the ones appointed to lead the people, to direct them through these times. They were the ones that should have had Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 13 before them, evaluating them, and then looking at John to see if he, 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 he met up to any of the demands there. And he fits. He was legitimate. Yeah. So instead of these guys looking good in front of the people, they just looked incompetent. What they should have done is they should have humbled themselves and asked this question in private, like Nicodemus. Amen? Things would have gone a lot better for them. But in this kind of context, Jesus is not interested in saving face. Not with these hypocrites. So Jesus' response is, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I just imagine he had a smile on his face when he said that. Okay. You know, sometimes it's just best to abide by the proverb that says, you know, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Proverbs 26, 4. So Jesus was refusing to play their little game. But it doesn't mean the public shaming has ended. He says to them, but what do you think? A man had two sons. I love this. You know, now that you've interrupted me and we're in a conversation, uh, and you've tried to make me look silly, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. So to the religious leaders, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So in the parable, the tax collectors and the harlots are represented by the first son, who initially refused to obey, but ultimately did the will of his father. And the religious leaders are represented by the second son, who said he would obey, gave lip service to the Father. You know, they draw near to me with their lips, but they're what? Their hearts are far from me, so they ultimately disregarded the will of the Father. But the tax collectors, the harlots, did the will of God. They entered the kingdom of God before these religious leaders. You see, even after the religious leaders, they were the witnesses that the worst that Israel had to offer, they were repenting. Even after they witnessed that, they would not relent and believe John's message of righteousness. And so they did not enter the kingdom at all. Yeah. Now, of course, the insinuation is that it, this did not go well with the leaders. You know, they're hearing this, and they're, they're not just hearing it, they're hearing it in front of all the people. The people are hearing Jesus say to them. Now, this is the thing. You know, the, the, the preaching of repentance was the primary mission of the prophet. And typically, people rejected that. But John the Baptist comes on the scene, and the worst of Israel, they're responding to it. He fits the calling of a prophet perfectly. And Jesus says, John is the greatest of all the prophets, right? This miracle that sinners were responding to the message. It should have proven to the religious leaders the source of John's authority. Sinners were turning to God. It validated his calling. You know, the question before 
earlier was the baptism of John. Where did it come from? From heaven or from men? Jesus, by way of a parable, he actually answers the question, doesn't he? But by answering the question, he indirectly answered the question about the origin of his own authority. John's testimony of of him. John's came from heaven. Jesus's came from heaven even more so. Now, this whole thing could have ended here, but Jesus wasn't done. Hear another parable. Oh, don't don't leave. I've got more for you. (laughs) This landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? The safest response at this point would have been to just leave. Don't say anything. But a man's pride has a tendency to keep him in the fight. So they puff their chests out, and they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus, he's got them. That's a confession. The religious leaders believe that justice demands that the vine dressers deserve a miserable death. Well said, for they're the ones that abused and killed people, even the son of the landowner. Jesus said to them, Have you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. The quotation is from Psalm 118, uh, verse 22 through 23. The cornerstone chosen by God was rejected by the builders. But because God is sovereign, the chief cornerstone will remain, and the builders, they will be rejected. This is important to the context. In Acts 4, 11 Peter says to the religious leaders of Israel that they are the builders, that you builders have rejected Christ who is the chief cornerstone. The builders are rejected because they rejected Christ. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Wow. Now, real quick, some see this as the death knell of the Jewish nation with their hopes of political and religious world leadership. But that interpretation contradicts the Old Testament prophets and the prophecy of Paul in Romans 11, 25 through 26. Jesus is saying to that generation of unbelieving Jews, especially those among the leadership, that they will be excluded from the kingdom. But the pronouncement is clearly temporary. If it were not, God would be a liar. And I've read someplace in the Bible that he can't do that. Okay? He has promised his earthly kingdom to a believing generation of Jews. A generation that will emerge during the time of Jacob's trouble, who will rule and reign with Christ from the land of Israel. So this is no death knell. It's a curse on that generation of unbelieving Jews for their rejection of Christ. You see, after the resurrection of Christ, the church was born, okay, which was made of Jews only. So not all Jews were under the curse, right? Yeah. After a while, the gospel was taken beyond the borders of Israel, okay, where it reaped a harvest initially just among Jews, 
and then to the Gentiles. Okay? So the church, which then consisted of Jews and Gentiles, it was bearing the fruit for the kingdom of God. That's the nation that the kingdom has been committed to until the repentance and salvation of ethnic Israel toward the end. Now, it may be exciting that the kingdom has been committed to the church, but we have to understand that there's a responsibility in that. And there's an implied problem with it. For what if the church fails to bear the fruits of the kingdom? Then what? Charles Spurgeon said in the middle of the 19th century of this passage, what a warning is this to our own country. We too are seeing the sacrifice and deity of our Lord questioned and his sacred word assailed by those who should have been its advocates. Unless there is speedy amendment, the Lord may take away the candlestick out of its place and find another race which will prove more faithful to him and his gospel than our own has been. Now things at that time in England, it wasn't much better in America. And since then, things have only gotten worse in the context of the church. I mean, perhaps you don't realize how unique or how small of a representation uh, like, like evangelicals have among those who claim to be Christian. It was during the days of Spurgeon in England that Jesus' sacrifice, his deity, those were being questioned. His sacred word assailed, but today his sacrifice, his deity, and the veracity of his word are blatantly rejected by those who should be the advocates, the advocates of it. So it's questioned then, but now it's just completely rejected. Jesus' virgin birth, his, his sinless life, the, the penal nature of his atonement, that he was punished for the sins of the world, even his resurrection, are completely denied by what is becoming the vast majority of mainstream, denom mainstream denominations. And therefore, in all of that, the gospel is not preached. And therefore, people are not being saved and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, is there fruit in that for the kingdom? No, there's only death. So the question is, what if the church doesn't succeed where Israel failed? <laughs> Read what Paul says in Romans 11. So Israel was cut off, that we might be grafted in. He says, therefore, do not be arrogant about it. Yes, they were cut off because of unbelief. Beware, lest by unbelief you also be cut off. It's exciting that the, the, the things of the kingdom have been committed to us. But that's a big deal. Amen? That's a big deal. The church needs to repent. The church needs to, to bear fruit worthy of repentance. We need to stop going backwards. We need to start moving forward. You know, Calvary Chapel belongs to the vast minority. I hope you guys know that. We're the strange ones. We're the radical fundamentalists because we love the word of God we believe every word in it, and we teach every word in it. We affirm all that Scripture affirms. We're even a growing movement. I reported Thursday night that uh, since Pastor Chuck has died, there are 50% more Calvary chapels. That is astounding to me. It's exciting, but there's something about it that, that concerns me. Okay? My real concern is that rather than conversion being the greatest source of growth in faithful churches... True believers are leaving bad churches for churches that affirm the truth of the word. People are finding genuine fellowship, which is essential. But the church needs to be assertive with sharing the gospel of salvation, that we might bear the fruit of the kingdom. We must, as a church, as the church, I don't just mean Calvary Chapel, but the church, we must have something to offer God. So 
Don't be so concerned about what this verse means for Israel. (laughs) What's done is done with that. And now that responsibility has been placed on us. Let us concern ourselves with what it means for us. Amen. Let us be faithful to God. Let us drive the commission into a dark world. Amen. We can be critical of Israel. It's pretty easy. But if you're familiar with church history, we're not any better. We need to be cautious. We need to be faithful. Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. Well, Father, your word says that um, you've created us to be zealous for good works. And, and we know we're not saved by good works. That's it's complete nonsense in the context of your grace. But you've saved us. You've, you've made us your people, the church, so that we would bear fruit unto God. So, Lord, I just pray that as we look at these things, that we would, we would feel the weight of the responsibility. And as the question of authority came up, Lord, at the Great Commission, you said, well, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven and in earth. So therefore, go. Lord, help us to go to our neighbor. Lord, help us to go across the world. Lord, help us to walk in holiness. We can't, we can't convert the world, but we can preach the gospel. We can't make ourselves holy, but we can yield to your spirit. Lord, help us to bear the fruit of the kingdom. Father, thank you for my church family, and I'm so grateful, Lord, to be among them in their midst, to serve with them. And I just pray that you would invigorate us, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be fruitful with one another and, Lord, with our community. Give us courage, give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.